He who fights monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster. I am on the unfettered pursuit of truth. I'm Kayla Perry, and this is Honestly Unorthodox. All right, everybody, with me today, I have uh, one of my most popular guests here, Meryl Winston. This is what, Meryl, your fourth, fifth appearance now? Uh, you know, I stopped keeping track like on the guests on Saturday Night Live, and I expect to <laughs> jacket shortly. <laughs> it's tough being a socialite, huh? With us, we have someone I am very excited to for my audience to hear from, Dr. George Bonanno, the author of The End of Trauma. This could not be a more perfectly timed appearance. Dr. B, welcome to the podcast. Um, very, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. So I want to actually start off with uh, speaking about your book. Your book, The End of Trauma, this was published right as the pandemic was beginning, correct? Or um, uh, No, uh, published about midway, I think. Midway through the pandemic. Okay. Did you, did you find that a lot of the material in your book um, applied to what people were going through during the pandemic? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I, I, as I was writing the book, the pandemic happened mm. and I decided to keep a diary, kind of a, a log, a diary of everything that was happening because it fit like a glove with the basic thesis of the book. Sure. Wow. So you are quite popular on the front page of Google, Dr. B, I, I have to say. Mm. <laughs> you, you sound surprised by that, which is, I suppose, a good thing. Um, I, I see that you kind of pioneered a lot of the research go before trauma even became an official diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. Could you speak a little bit about how you became interested in trauma in the first place? Um, yeah, sure. Um, actually, um, the diagnosis became it, uh, official in 1980. Mm -hmm. My research really kicked in about a decade later. Okay. Partly it was, it, it was in, inspired or it, let's say, um, I began the research because of what was happening in the PTSD world. Mm -hmm. I first began my research on grief and bereavement. And that literature, um, that world seemed woefully out of date. And I was very much surprised, but it came really from a very different, came kind of out of left field. Mm -hmm. um, I had an opportunity to, to get involved in bereavement research and to, with well-funded uh, study. So, um, and I thought, wow, this is very interesting. This is a thing that happens to everybody. And it's so poorly, um, it's not up to date. It's poorly researched. So we began to, um, do all kinds of things that nobody had ever done, which is very easy to do because not that much had been done. Mm -hmm. And we found almost immediately that people were much more resilient than anyone had assumed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the beginning, we didn't even call it resilience. Until we really got used to it. We, you know, as a, I'm a scientist at heart, so we replicated things. Then I was interested in trauma after that because it looked like the same thing was happening in the PTSD world, in the trauma world. Um, because the, in 1980, the diagnosis had been formalized, and it was a much-needed diagnosis. You know, people do have PTSD, and people who have PTSD were suffering because there wasn't really any good way to treat them. You know, we're a, we're a country in, in the United States and much of the world, actually, where you need a diagnosis to get a proper treatment. 
Sure. In the United States, you have to pay for it. You need a diagnosis to, to, to convince an insurance company to pay for it. So we needed the diagnosis, but the diagnosis really um, just spread like, like wildfire. You know, um, first of all, many people got involved in it because people had been waiting for the diagnosis. The treatment sprung up, books were written, and those books were all about how bad it was. And there is some truth in that for people who have genuine PTSD and are suffering, it's very bad. So the books um, gave the, uh, I think the intention, whether whether that was, or gave the, uh, gave the idea whether it was intentional or not, that PTSD is more common than it is. And that's a spread and, and that led to, you know, we're wired for threat as human beings. We, we are, you know, we, we're looking for threat. We have a, a very well-developed threat response system from evolution. You know, it's, it's evolved in us, it involved in animals. And um, we, we got it late in the game because we came on the scene late in the game as humans. And um, so we are paying attention when we hear about how bad things can be. These events can really harm you. We pay attention to that. And soon, the, the, the journalistic world got involved. It sells newspapers. The, then the internet happened, and it, the, the internet is based on the internet world of finance or economics is based on clicks. Sure. You know, and, and so it, it gets clicks. And soon it just became a thing. You know, the New York Times, you know, the, the whatever newspaper anybody reads, they, they want articles that people click on, and that's what click, gets clicks. So it led to this kind of exponential um focus on trauma how bad it is in my research all along with with grief with trauma with just about everything else we've studied bad things in general has shown over and over and over and over and over um that most people are resilient to these events most people come out pretty well they might suffer for a little bit and then they're good and they move on and they often don't even remember the event they don't think about it very much and so this is this is sort of the disconnect between what the research shows and what's what's kind of the general idea out there. Sure. As strange as this question might sound, do you find people are disappointed to hear that most are resilient? Um, I wouldn't say disappointed. People were well. There have been a number of different reactions historically, and this is super interesting. One of these days, I have to write about this that when I first began my work, it wasn't so much um, refuted as, as it was ignored. Mm. And then the work, you know, we kept doing the research, we kept replicating the studies and publishing and the journals would publish it, good journals would publish it because it was good science, if I do say so myself. And um, then, you know, people were kind of ignoring it. Then 9-11 happened and there was a, a very, there was a global interest in what is what trauma was, you know, and how bad is this going to be? And so the research that was showing people are resilient got a lot of positive press, got a lot of attention. And then that just grew because we kept replicating the studies and you hear you began to hear about it, read about it in the papers that people are resilient. But then I I don't know exactly when this happened. I just it was almost as if I wasn't paying attention anymore. And then it shifted back. And I think in the younger generations, it shifted back to- Oh yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. big time. yes, big time. And that's curious, you know, now TikTok is, is, is a yeah. very huge, huge um, medium. And it's all about how weak and 
fragile and harmed people are. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, Meryl, go ahead. <laughs> oh, no. It's, it, it, it's become a thing. The thing that I've been seeing is that I, I'll just tell you how I got into this, um, George, is that, uh, you know, I'm a behavior analyst like Kayla and I, I don't, I don't just analyze, you know, adults with disabilities or children with autism or somebody with a behavior problem. I like to look at social issues. I like to look at the DSM. I like, I like to be able to understand what other people are looking at, treating, how I can talk about it scientifically and not mentalistically and not in a manner with fictive explanations. So I became interested in that. And then this thing started happening with trauma. And people started saying things like, like I had a, rest, uh, a restraint training company. I was, I was a, a part owner of it for years. And I myself many, many times restrained people with special needs who were in crisis and very dangerous, right? Yes. Now, even though we restrained them on these soft, cushy mats because we did not want to cause them any pain because it works against you in a million ways and we wanted them to de-escalate quickly, right? And so what, you, what you'd start hearing is phrases that imbue almost any stimulus with the ability to produce PTSD. And what they say is, everyone knows restraints are traumatizing. Mm, blanket and so, statements. And, and, it, and oh. you can substitute anything you want in there. And, and the thing that struck me is, what do you mean traumatizing? Do you mean people are developing the classic symptoms, the DSM symptoms of PTSD? Is that what you mean when you say it's traumatizing? And, and it struck me that I didn't think people actually even knew what they meant. Yeah. Is I that, I mean, that completely, you know, completely. Absolutely. I mean, it, it was like they took, I, here's one way people used it. Here's the way I see people treating trauma-informed. It, it makes me crazy. And trauma-informed is a, a, seems like a vague thing as well. Mm -hmm. It seems like, um, like a panacea. Like, are you trauma-informed? Yeah. Oh, it's cool. A yeah. Uh, and so, well, what is it? I don't know, but I'm very informed. And, you know, it's here's what it sounds like. It's trauma informed. And I, it's not this, but this is the way it plays out. Assume everyone has it. I actually heard someone say that in a professional conference. Yes. Um, uh, don't awaken the monster. They don't say this, but this is the mentality. Yeah. And, blame it, and blame any problems you see on the sleeping monster. And George, what we saw was I started seeing behavior analysts who should know better saying things like this. When one of these kids punches you in the face because you ask him to do his homework, please don't be angry at him. It's a trauma response. It's a trauma response. That's that's one of the big phrases that has swept behavior analysis. George, do you um do you use trauma response in in your research or when you're treating clients? No, I I, I don't. I, no, not at all. Um, so many things um, that were just said, um, I could respond to. Um, I I think trauma informed is a trauma informed care is a very bad idea. I think it's dangerous. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think you that, that a lot during this podcast, George. Yeah. Sorry. Part, part of part of the the reason it's dangerous is because it's based on the fiction that people are carrying around hidden traumas. Right. <laughs> And Which is a very is no, popular no, headline. Yeah, it's a very popular concept. People use it to, people professionally use it to beat each other up. Yeah. I, I think what's happening is that 
um, there's a lot of misunderstanding, as you said, and I agree with that completely, and also misnomers, like misuse of terms. So uh, if you look at the research, my research and other people's research, there's, there's long, long studies that have been done over 10, 15 years, beginning with like mid-childhood and forward, and people go through a lot of what I call potentially traumatic events. Sure. I try not to call anything a traumatic event, a potentially traumatic event. Um, and many people, the epidemiological, you know, big, large studies, epidemiological research shows that most people go through at least one and often several of these kinds of events. I right. can think of at least five or six in my own life. Absolutely. And most of them when I was young and quite stupid, you know, <laughs> and I got involved in things I shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. And those events, the research shows, my research and other people's research, most people are resilient to those events. They mm-hmm. get through them without much long-lasting harm. So, in the, the, so if most people have those events in the past and we assume those are traumas, then we're basically kind of um, uh, building an idea around events that weren't actually causing long-lasting harm. But people can be very easily swayed to think, oh, that was a traumatic event. And that explains your symptoms. That's why you feel that's your monster that's sleeping. Yes, they're working backwards from the conclusion. There's no truth to that at all. And and what happens is, as a behavior analyst, I like to look at why people use these concepts. And my analysis in this case, in a lot of the cases, like a lot of the labels that are used, the, the way this is used, it allows people to control the behavior of others like... And I explained this in a talk I did. I said, look, no one wants your staff to blame the child for anything they do. That doesn't help things. And it doesn't help the relationship to blame the child for the way they learn to behave. Fine. But we don't get staff to stop blaming them by creating this fictive explanation of trauma response, which they don't say it, but it implies he can't help it. That's really dangerous. Because, you know, the only thing we can't help is if somebody pushes you off a cliff, you can't help but fall. Okay. I mean, that's, that's time that you really can't help it. And I mean, I know like when people have um, an emotional response, perhaps you can't help the initial response that you have. Sure. Like if you suddenly feel fear or suddenly feel anger, but it kind of implies they can't help what they do once they feel. because of their deep-seated trauma yeah and you know it's very interesting and i I don't have evidence for this um point i'm about to make yet we probably i'm getting interested in studying it but that people who had been through what what are assumed to be traumatic events didn't actually suffer long-lasting trauma those people are more willing to hold on to the idea that that was a trauma people who had actually been traumatized who had long-lasting traumatic responses afterwards, who developed symptomatic responses, those people know they've been traumatized. It's not hidden. They know, and they want nothing more than to get rid of it. And they want you to, they want you, mental health, they want people to help them get rid of it. They don't want to leave it as a, they don't want to think of it as a hidden trauma that's causing their problems. They want it done with. It's, it's because they're in touch with their real pain, right. not a real following yeah that's a good way to put it yeah yeah that's a good way to put it well there's a lot of what happens is people generate a lot of rules about a lot of things um including um their own prognosis i was reading that about um 
part of the treatment for people with PTSD. One of the self-defeating, self-fulfilling prophecies is, I'll never get better, I'll always be fearful like this. And making rules like that and following those rules and then giving those rules to other people. When they try to say, maybe you can get better, then they say, they give them the rule, no, I'll always be like this. Which was what? This, which was this resiliency blind spot? I think I, I had heard you discuss oh, at yeah, some point yeah, or yeah. another. Was the, that the resilience, bl- the resilience blind spot's a little bit different? What it is is okay. that when, uh, but it's 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 in the ballpark of what we're talking about. When re- when bad things happen to a lot of people, mm-hmm. um, like disasters, like um, like the pandemic, sure, like nine eleven, that there's an assumption that. We can't see that. Well, and it happens to individuals too, but that's when something happens to us and we are feeling very upset, very disturbed. Um, we're, and we're having what usually is a normal reaction, a nightmare or two, some nightmares of, you know, sense of being uneasy after an event, um, of wanting to avoid the situation for a, few, a couple of weeks, maybe, you know, gradually fades in, in the course, less than a month for sure. That's a normal reaction. And, um, but th- when we have those reactions, we can't imagine that we're going to be better. We can't imagine. And that's what I call the resiliency blind spot. Mm-hmm. And okay. when it happens on a large scale, like 9-11, like the pandemic, there's so much reinforcement in the media, in mental health professionals too. That, and I gave lots, I was on lots of panels that, that were global panels, you know, on the internet after 9-11. And the, the speakers before me, one after another, were, were forecasting how disastrous, how bad this was going to be, how the, the pandemic was going to overwhelm mental health resources in kind of an unprecedented mental health crisis. And I would get on and I would show you know, my research and talk about, no, well, most people are going to probably be resilient to this. And that was a, there was such a disconnect. And I think very few people either took that seriously or, you know, really knew what to make of it, the people on these panels. And of course, the research now shows that is exactly what happened. Most people did really well. I mean, you know, psychology, people suffered, some people were anxious, but the, the trajectories were, were really clear. Why do you think that's hard for people to adopt or understand? Um, I think, well, when, when we're feeling anxious, you know, it goes back to a lot of social psychology research. When Dan Gilbert's research and others, you know, when we're feeling intense emotions, the emotions are tend to be short-lived, you know, and, and these initial reactions are a little bit more than emotions. There are stress response, traumatic stress response. That's one of the words people use. Um, we don't feel those event, those responses as, as ending. You know, we think they're going to be like this until they stop. You know, and then we say, okay, I'm over that. You know, when people are angry, they feel like they'll be angry forever, right? And then the next day, they're kind of sheepish about how angry they got, you know. <laughs> you know, sure. um, so that's, I think, the way things work in our, our mind body system. It works that way, and we just can't imagine it. And I think in the in recent years, in, you know, um, we've learned a little bit about it. And in recent years, we've kind of shifted back to where we take those reactions as. You know, we, we reinforce them. We, we begin to worry. People that know this research even say things like, do I have PTSD? You know, I think I have PTSD, which creates more anxiety and then worries it, you know, that, so it, it kind of steamrolls. Yeah. George, do you think, because this is um, a lot of times people make the claim of PTSD. They don't really say PTSD. They'll say trauma, but they're implying PTSD for individuals who are nonverbal. And 
I just want to get your take on this. When I was trying to explain after reading about PTSD, how it's diagnosed, how a lot of it requires language, how a lot of the treatment requires language, and how the development of it, language probably plays a role. I was wondering, would you expect different things from two people who saw the same horrific qualifying event, experienced it? One talks perfectly, has a complete verbal repertoire. The other one is completely nonverbal. And what I was saying to the, to the people I was explaining it to is, I, I don't know this, but I suspect that the tremendous generalization you see in severe PTSD, where any stimulus that is six degrees of Kevin Bacon away from the qualifying event is enough to set off a chain of events. And the reason is we're so sophisticated. Here's the way I explained it. That is, if you were in a plane crash and you have language, you don't have to see a plane crash to become frightened. You just have to see a picture of a plane or hear somebody say, I've got to catch a plane or any of these other things related to aircraft. If you're nonverbal, it seemed to me that the horrific event would create a fear problem, but that would look more like a phobia because it would be highly specific and not, and, and the person can also do this. I was going to ask you this like a three-year-old, a three-year-old will be terrified, even if they can talk on a plane that's about to crash, but the three-year-old knows nothing of their own mortality. The 10-year-old does. And I'm wondering what that does to, you know, the human. I know I'm going to die. I know what death is. You know what I mean? Do, do you think that there'd be a difference between either a nonverbal child, a very young child who didn't understand these concepts? Well, um, Trauma reactions or PTSD, development of PTSD is, is largely um, centered around memory, right? About re, re, returning memories that haunt and are, you know, and, and the inability to, to, to sort of shut off the stress response. I honestly don't know much about nonverbal children. I, I don't know really what, what it, that experience is like, and I don't know what the, I've had very little experience with them, so I can't answer yeah. that question really. It's, a, it's okay. I, I, I know what I have seen in the past with some individuals is specific phobias linked to abuse. So as an example, I, I passed by an adult client once holding a broom in my hand and I got a bit too close to her and she did a flinching hands up thing, mm -hmm. uh, which makes me pretty sure she was hit with a broom before. Oh, I see. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But you know what I'm saying? She's nonverbal, but it's not like she's sitting around all day going... I hope that lady with the broom isn't here, which we right. can do. It's not, her her can cognitive capacity it. doesn't allow her to recount that. Right. I was just I was wondering the role of of the development of of language and its ability, yeah, to amplify what happens. Well, to us that's now. a it's a good that's a good question. I mean, I think a lot of people. Well, there are people who have had grown up in very difficult circumstances who develop behavioral reactions to things. Um, that that um, that are that were adaptive at the time, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And yes. now, as adults, they're not adaptive, or as you know, older children, even they're no longer adaptive, but they still behave that way because that's what worked and it's ingrained in who how they think the world is. That's very different than a trauma reaction. But yes. I think that I think language is very important for conceptualization and understanding, definitely. So we we conceptualize the world through language. 
And I don't know if nonverbal children still conceptualize the world linguistically or, you know, through, through and, concepts or not. Right. Like the points I was going to make is that you could cause someone great panic after something happened if they didn't realize they were just in great danger and you inform them what almost happened to them that they didn't know about, some people will completely freak out. And that's, and that's only through language that we could even do something like that, mm -hmm. right? So you could say, do you know who you just said that to? No, that was the head of the gang members, you know, over here. And then, <gasps> you know, this kind of thing. Well, but just before you, you had no problem. And now I simply gave you a small piece of information and you almost vomited. So, you know, it's, I don't know how it ties it in, but I suspect it really mucks, it really mucks things up. It's not very scientific, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but just in, in terms of all the interconnections that can be made and that, that could cause someone. Let me ask if you, if I may, let me ask you a question because I don't sure. know much about what a nonverbal person or nonverbal childhood would be. Why, why are they nonverbal? Oh, a lot of the people we work with, uh, they have the diagnosis autism, uh, developmental disorders, and many, many of the people that behavior analysts work with, not exclusively, but many of them, they don't know how to talk. And if they're not, if they're not taught specifically, they'll never learn. And then some individuals never ever learn. And they're usually um, significantly delayed uh, developmentally. And so there's a lot it, it, in our field. The, the reason I'm asking the question is, I don't know, but I suspect that the same kind of PTSD that we see with completely verbal individuals, I don't even know if we would see the same yeah. kind of yeah. thing. That, that makes sense. That makes Where sense. I, I am certain we could see a simple phobia, like somebody who is calm as can be most of the time. And if one stimulus happens, they have a complete panic attack. They have a complete fear response. Yeah. Right. Um, that would make sense to me. But that, or even, I mean, there's no reason people couldn't have recurring nightmares, but they wouldn't have the verbal repertoire to sustain it for the same length of time. Yeah. Well, I would I imagine, I'm, I'm kind of speculating based on a little, my limited understanding of, of the people you're describing, that people with um, severe autism um, would have a, a very, very different conceptualization of the world. I would say much more, as you said, much more developmentally um, uh, delayed, and therefore they wouldn't have, even nightmares would be somewhat different than for, for, for more um, developmentally. And not, and not just for the people listening, not just for people with the diagnosis of autism, I'm just talking about anyone who's nonverbal, uh, more, more specifically, uh, that I, I'm just questioning how that affects the development of it, and if we still see the same things. Yeah, I mean, um, it's interesting because if you if you if you take adults who have um, developed to to let's just say um, a typical developmental maturity, right? Mm -hmm. right? And they've reached uh, you know early adulthood, and they've they're they're in a sense a mature adult, and then going on to live an adult life. If those people, what's very interesting is to compare the, the, the individuals you're describing with, with adults who, who either midlife or later in life had um, circumstances that resulted in brain damage that, that removed some of these functions. And from my understanding is that those people can still understand the world perfectly 
and even react to the world perfectly, even if they've lost lost language, for example, but they're still um, essentially have this uh, mature brain. So the developmental part, I think, is really what what's key to hmm. this under, to this idea. Yeah, it's what happens in our field a lot is there's this assumption that people don't even say PTSD; they just say they think there's trauma. And I say, well, how would you verify it? Because and you know, PTSD is like the trauma and stressor-related disorder. Well, they're not all fear-based, but PTSD is one of, I just call it a fear-based disorder. Its primary thing is fear, yeah. right? I mean, that's, that's uh, out of all the emotions, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's rather crude, uh, but I say it's like fear gone haywire. It's normally an adaptive response. It's normally a great response. It normally keeps us alive, but now it's happening when it shouldn't be. And it's happening under conditions where there is no threat. Yes, exactly. And now that is why it's a problem. Because yeah. normally we need it. Right. Yeah. So while we're exactly. while we're on the topic of there being essentially no threat or no qualifying event that could be potentially traumatic, oh. I would love your thoughts, George, on um, complex post-traumatic stress disorder and the yeah. uh, <laughs> the rise of that. Yeah. So I mean, I, I in theory don't necessarily dismiss the idea of complex PTSD. In theory, However, meaning like meaning the, the general... It could, it could be a kind of a, of, a, of a legitimate concept. Okay. But like many things in, that have happened in, in this, this field, um, there was a kind of a rush to say, to define it before there was any real evidence. Most of the evidence is retrospective. By that, I mean people talking about their past. Mm-hmm. And we know very well, there's so much evidence that people, we are not good um, reporters on our past. Correct. And, it's, and, we, and, and we know that, you know, events that were, that were one, ex, one experience of the event can be altered by our contemporary experience. You know, there's, there's, there's lots of neuroscience and what's called memory reconsolidation, right? Memory is not um, a bunch of wires in our brain. Um, like on a computer, memory is not, you know, a digital um, storage of a real event. Memories are organic. They're based on neural pathways and neural pathways change every time we go there, essentially. So current experience modifies the past. So the idea that it's all based on what people thought or remember of the past um, is just, that's no way to, to, to develop any concept. You know, if it was real, we should basically do the work and look at, at data from the from from childhood to adulthood, which we have data like that, but we could do more. And that, as far as I know, that that that's not coming into the picture at all. It's just this assumption. Okay, like just like trauma is assigned without really any sense of understanding of it or any any real evidence. Complex PTSD is often assigned based on the assumption. Okay, that that was you had all these things. You have complex PTSD. Uh, you have a special kind of PTSD. And um, so, I mean, I think it could be real, as I said, it, or it could be genuine. It could be an interesting concept. But if it is, let's do the research. Let's find out. If it, how, how might one even research that, considering it seems like just a, a custom manner of broadening the criteria for PTSD and trying to fit any adverse life event into a category to make us fit into the, the PTSD label? Is how my cynical yeah. side no, no. Richard McNally at Harvard has a great phrase. He calls it bracket creep. 
Oh, I love that. You know, how the the category of PTSD is, it's, I mean, it's a little bit of a Pandora's box. Sure. The initial diagnosis, and oddly, I am no fan of the DSM at all. Hmm. And, um, I, but oddly, I, I, I actually like the DSM's original diagnosis and the ICD, the, the International Classification mm-hmm. of Disorders that the World yep. Health Organization runs, I like their original definition as well, which is basically mm-hmm. it's an event outside the, the realm of normal human experience that caused, you know, that caused potential harm. And, it, and I like to think of it as triggering a very, very pronounced emergency response, you know. Go to the emergency department with an injury, that's an emergency. You bring someone in with bells and whistles and ambulances and everybody running around to see what's going on, that's a, a, a severe emergency response. Right. And I think that's, that happens in when genuinely horrific events happen. It doesn't happen when lots of other things we, we assume it, uh, it, it did happen. Um, and so... Um, I, don't know, I forgot where I was going, but that's the basic idea. I, I think people people hijack. However, I, I use this when I when I did the, the presentation. I used the normal bell shaped curve, and I said, you know, people kind of hijack what is a sentinel event. And so, you know, as you get closer, if like if like limb dismemberment and torture were at the top, okay, and war and battle, right? you would get more and more people that actually did develop PTSD. But as you get out toward the tails, and I saw a, a great quote from another uh, from a psychologist, and he said, look, we're not talking about the, and these are the words he used, we're not talking about the vicissitudes of daily life, divorce, you know, loss of a family member, loss of a job. We're not talking about these things that may really mess you up. We're talking about, I think it started at the very top, it seems to me we started at almost dying. That's like what it started at, okay? Like almost dying. And then it's like, well, no, it could also be this. And it could also be this. And it could also be you watching video of something that could give you PTSD, but it doesn't count if you're watching video as part of your job, mm. <laughs> which is right from the DSM. It's right out of the DSM. Like if you work in the the more recent diagnosis, yeah. Right. If you have to work in the police department and you see video of people getting shot all day long, that doesn't count. Okay. Or no, though it only counts for that. If you see if you saw it on the news, that doesn't count. It's something like that. Like Yeah, if it's like if it's second hand enough, then it doesn't count or or something. Do you know one of my former students wrote and published a paper with the title if I'm gonna, I might get this. I might mess. Might be a little bit inaccurate in this. Six hundred thirty-six thousand one hundred twenty-nine ways to have PTSD. And yeah, oh, what wow. it is. The DSM diagnoses are so complicated. They're mm-hmm. such a menu of different symptoms, which is very, very impractical. And if you do the the numbers, and you look at just all simply, all you have to do is look at statistically the different combinations of symptoms yeah. that can result in the diagnosis. You yeah. get 636,129. It means although you could have 636,129 people, all with a slightly different diagnosis. And it's no wonder we have so many people that are claiming to be traumatized. Be, yeah. I mean, that's a lot of... Here's the other thing that people missed. The DSM in the foreword, I thought, is pretty clear on. And that is, it, we're talking about things that are debilitating. So as an example, I was called in as an expert 
right? And they and they said I was an expert in trauma because I could explain it to a jury. So clearly, George, they have a very low bar. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, I I went in, and here was the whole case. What they were saying was. You, uh, and by the way, this particular person was nonverbal. It was a very big court case. What they were saying was, you restrained our child a lot. And they did. He had a lot of behavior problems. And you gave him trauma. And the evidence is, his behavior was at this level when we brought him to you. And then you started restraining him. Now his behavior's up here. And now he'll avoid, he doesn't want to go into the school. You gave him trauma. And so that was kind of the case that was built. But if you look at the actual, like, is there, like, kids don't want to go into school all day long. That's one of the main things I do when I go into schools is kids won't get off the bus. They won't go into the school. They don't have PTSD. They just don't like school. Sure, right. (laughs) But, you know, um, when we looked at it, I I asked the staff, um, you know, when they get restrained, again, they get restrained on this giant blue mat. It's the only variable that doesn't change. I go, when you walk in by the mat, that allegedly he was traumatized in the restraint, given PTSD. Does he have any reaction to it at all? Any bad reactions? Does he look fearful? Does he move away from it? And they go, no, he'll sit on it and play. And I'm like, okay, it seems to me that like, if you had your arm broken in a restraint and it was, uh, you thought you were gonna die and it was horrifying, you're having nightmares. It seems to me at least the sight of the mat would do something to somebody. But my point being is that every, so many people who are crying trauma I ask a simple question. Do you see fear? Do you see any fear at all? Like they'll cry trauma for the kid that is trying to attack you and coming at you. And that's not a retreating response. That's an aggressive, active, appetitive behavior. And then they'll go, oh, well, that's how he expresses his trauma. Mm -hmm. And it's just like they try to make everything, again, fit in there. Going back. It's a beautiful, fictive explanation, and it's a popular one, but... In most cases, that's not what it is. In most cases, it's a kid having a tantrum yeah. who's really angry, not really afraid. Right. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, you know, people look pretty much the same when they look fearful. I mean, there's not special fear looks, <laughs> I don't think. I mean, I think across like cultures and everything. Right. Uh, you know, people, you can see fear. And I asked them, do you see fear? And they go, well, no. And I said, well, well, why are you jumping to trauma? Because... Uh, I mean, I have seen one kid that he probably was abused quite badly, locked in a closet for many hours. He had a resting heart rate of 120, had some language and would say things like, no closet, no closet and and be shaking. And, and he didn't look comfortable in his own body while he was awake. That's That's very different. And what I was trying to explain to people is like, if somebody has like severe PTSD, I don't think you have to guess about it. I mean, it's, it's, and, and that's, I think people don't understand it. They think that this trauma is not related to PTSD. It's a thing you can have by yourself. It's something that's in you. It explains things that happen and that any bad thing that happens to you is a trauma in you and it's up to you. And that's, this is most of what we see lately. It's, it's that, again, we're imbuing stimuli that we personally find aversive or repulsive and we imbue them with the ability to produce PTSD in anyone exposed to those stimuli. That's what people, it's a very popular thing to do and it's really dangerous. It demands people with PTSD for one, saying that everybody uh, has it. And and the other point I take from the movie, The Incredibles, uh, when everyone has PTSD, no one will. 
You know, when everyone has trauma, no one will. It's a new yeah, that's a sad aspect of, of a lot of these, these trends is that people with genuine PTSD are, are underestimated. They're just lumped in this in with everybody else in a sense, and they're not treated. They're, they're not mm-hmm. given the sort of attention they actually deserve. Well, and my my fear is that we're going to start allocating resources to these, to, I guess, people who might believe they have CPTSD, and it, it kind of takes away from what's available to people with true PTSD. I, I think, think that's, that's my bigger... Happened. I think that's already happened. And, and the thing is, if you, you if you took that to medicine, right, let's, let's take the analogy to medicine. That would be like me saying, I think I have cancer, and I want to go see a cancer specialist, and I want them to, you know, like, I think, because I think everyone has it, and I want them to treat me for it, and I want to spend money on it, even though people are telling me they can't find any. You know, uh, it's it, it, it's so bizarre from that point of view, and I think it's, it's because of one of the problems. Um, what are your thoughts on this, George? I think it's a... It's a conceptual issue in that in medicine, we have different kinds of halves and some are more palpable than others. So like you can have a kidney stone, they can show that to you. I have hypertension, they can't show it to me. It's nowhere. And you can have PTSD and you can have depression, but they're not the same kinds of halves. I I agree 100%. That's the big problem with psychiatric diagnoses in general is because there is no um, there is no cause coming in from inside the body. It's a very outdated model, actually, the idea that you have something in you that's pe- like you have PTSD in you and all your, your, rea- your symptoms are manifestations of that PTSD. Right. That's actually backwards. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. That's what I, I, I try to explain to people. I go, look, you don't hallucinate because you have schizophrenia, that's teleological. Hallucinating gets you the label. Yeah, Schiz- and there's there's an actually wonderful way to show this research-wise and statistics-wise, and it's shown it now a lot, you know, many times. It's called network analysis. And what, what network analysis is, is people are all the people are, are tested for all the symptoms of PTSD or anything else. It has some limitations, but, and what network analysis has begun to show is that some key symptoms begin to perpetuate other symptoms. So say, you know, you might have this intense um, fear reaction, as you said, you might have uh, an intense um, uh, avoidant reaction. You might have, um, you know, you take the child with with the mat, Oh no, the child with the closet, right? You might start to develop this tremendous fear reaction to the closet, you might, or this idea. And then that soon becomes an anxiety. Uh, so anxiousness, it might also develop into not being able to sleep. It might also develop into a kind of a hyper arousal, you know, um, and then an avoidance of things that might be trigger the closet idea. And then that gradually festers into something like PTSD, or it can fester into something like PTSD, but it starts with one kind of reaction that is then triggers other symptoms. They're not triggers, I'm sorry, that's the wrong word, um, that, that, that sort of um, spreads to other, other aspects of life. So one problem becomes many problems. It's almost like when I looked at some of the, um, some of the listing, some of the characteristics of resiliency and protective factors, I think they call them, when I looked at some of those characteristics, they they looked like 
almost just like behavioral tendencies, like things you tended to do, experiences you tended to have, external locus, I'm sorry, internal locus of control. I can overcome anything. I was looking at a lot of those things and I thought they were very, it, it's almost like, and I've heard also things like when the event's happening, part of what determines the course of what's, how it's going to affect you is what you do during it. Do you, are, do you show inaction and do you cower when whatever's happening is happening or are you highly active and fighting back if you're being attacked? things like that. And they, and I can't remember where I read it, but they were saying it's not that you fought back necessarily, but the kind of a person who would fight back. You know, you, it says something about maybe your history with adverse events, how you respond to them, et cetera. And uh, for the same reasons that when they train EMTs, they train them with actors so that they, they are less likely to have a horrible emotional reaction, a fear response when they see blood going all over the place and people screaming. And uh, they, I don't know if that would qualify as a protective factor, but I think that's why they do those things. But, mm-hmm. um, to desensitize them to what they'll be facing somewhat. eventually. Yeah, somewhat. I, um, and they had interesting, I saw just one interesting study about like factors for Vietnam War vets. And they said a lot of it were just, the age that they went into the military. Um, this was an interesting one. The ones that were a b- much bigger risk factor for PTSD were ones that abused civilians and prisoners of war. Hmm. And uh, I was wondering the impact, because I remember reading in the qualifications for PTSD that technically a qualifying event could be you seeing the effects of your behavior on someone else. That is, you shot somebody hmm. or you killed somebody. And that was a, that was the qualifying event. Um, do you do you happen to know if that kind of thing really happens that much, where someone develops PTSD not by what happened to them so much, but by um, a horrible thing they produced in another person? Um, I don't know. Um, there, there's a, a kind of an area, a spin-off area that is developed called moral injury. Mm. And a lot of people are, are interested in that now. It's a little bit, it's run the same course, unfortunately, as uh, complex trauma. Whereas before the research was there, people leapt into the idea that, that, that people suffer from moral injury. And it's not PTSD, which is interesting. It's, it's, it's an injury. It's a kind of a, um, a, a, a violation of your core values. Right. Of your sense of what's right and that it causes a lot of dis, uh, you know, dissonant cognition, a lot of sense of what I thought the world was is not what the world was. So it doesn't really cause a PTSD reaction. At least that's what the research said. So it probably correlates with that kind of thing a lot. But it's really more of a, a, a very disturbing event that, that, that shakes your value system and causes it's like a core shake up. So. While we're on the topic of moral injury, CPTSD, and things that kind of would fall under the the bracket of PTSD, we'll put it that way, I, I really would want your take on, I guess one of the statements I hear very frequently is, trauma is however someone experiences it. And if they develop a fear response that is, I guess, heightened enough, that's trauma to them. And we're not allowed to tell people what is traumatic if that's their natural response. Yeah. 
Um, my, 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 my take on that? Well, that's a very slippery slope. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what, what Rich McDowell was describing as bracket creep. Yeah. That, yeah. Um, you know, but it, it once, so the, 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 the diagnosis of PTSD was originally about these events that everybody could agree on. Sure. And, yeah. And then it sort of gradually, well, people argued, well, that Pete, but as you just said, that trauma really means what you're, what more about what you are um, particularly upset by, or it's how you interpret it, your subjective response. And that opened the Pandora's box, really, and we can't seem to close it. And unfortunately, it's possible that people could have a, a, serious trauma reaction to an event that very few people would consider traumatic mm-hmm. but it's highly unlikely right and you know but the, it's in the it's in the, the the very weakly in the realm of possibility the, the, and, the problem and, is just that the problem is yeah. that that um we don't know and we know that lots of people will think they have ptsd or lots of people will pretend they have ptsd or lots of people will be convinced that they have ptsd based on those reactions. And anytime money is involved, which many, many traumatic events or potentially traumatic events, there is a payoff, either a payoff financially or a payoff socially for whatever reason. It's just an impossible, um, it's a possible um, problem to, to, to um, you know, work out. It's, it's just, you know. Sure, yeah, I, I just, I, I've tried to be mindful and empathetic to what other people feel and that we all process and make of what we will, whatever happens to us. I have a very hard time believing that the that the 19 year old that didn't get into Stanford is experiencing a trauma response or a traumatic reaction, whatever yes. you want to call it, in the same manner that someone might who has just come back from war and has developed PTSD. I just have a very yeah, hard time and, believing and I think- that. I think Dr. Wilson's take on that general idea is pretty accurate that, well, did they have this intense fear reaction? Do they have serious um, avoidance or, you know, uh, fear reactions to mm-hmm. anything related to that? When they find out they didn't get in again, do they, you know, break down and, and flee the room? Probably sure. not. Right. This, right. This is one of the things that people don't take into account. And that's, and that's what I talked about in the court case. And that's functional disruption. So I said, look, and this is the way I explained it. I go, look, we had an individual who has a disability, already had behavior problems, already had a certain level of dysfunction. After what you claim happened, the restraints, he's still at the same functional level. His bad behavior is a little bit worse, but he has, he'd had no skill loss. We're not talking about someone who is fully functional, social, not afraid, got restrained. Now, all these things have changed. They're not sleeping. They're staying in their room. They won't attend any kind of social function. You know, 15 things change. And the person is a different person. And now they are non-functional. This is not what most people are describing. They're describing mild behavioral variations that could be due to a lot of things, not a major disruption yeah. to someone's yeah. life. Yeah. Do you, you know, know what I mean? What, what's fascinating is that I teach a very large um, course for master's level students at Columbia called The Psychology of Loss and Trauma. And I love teaching it. I teach it in an auditorium and I'm, I have to be on a stage because there's so many students in the auditorium. And the beginning of, and this, this has been a change I've seen over the last, say, five, 
I don't know if I would say go back 10 years, but at least over the last five years, that the students come in the class, most of the time when I teach this class, the students who are psychology graduate students don't really know that much about uh, trauma or that literature, but now they come in with wildly divergent ideas. The kind of ideas you're describing, that everybody's traumatized, that it's stored in the body, it's hidden, um, that it's a monster sleeping, you know, all that stuff. And they, and they come in not as, assuming that trauma is very easily triggered by almost anything and that they're really horrible or really difficult events you wish didn't happen, like not getting into graduate school, or you know, um, being um, uh, ending a re relationship you thought was going to go well. Those are all traumas, and the class begins by my asking them, you know, what it is. What are, what is a trauma? What is a traumatic event? And I list everything that they said, you know, and then we begin to take it apart. And the first few weeks they're very confused because I'm telling them this is not actually accurate. This is not the way it works. And through the beginning of the semester, it's a little, uh, it's intense because I'm basically reviewing the literature, I'm reviewing the ideas, going through the evidence. By the end of the course, they've made a complete, most of the students have made a complete 180 turn. I'm um, sure. I don't know what, how many degrees that would be, but they've completely changed their ideas. And it's a fascinating thing to see. And many students tell me, they have a completely different idea about about this literature, about what a trauma is and what it's not now. And but yeah. it's very interesting to see where they began. I would argue more clearly afterwards with them as an exercise on how to think more clearly. Because people who come in with the conceptions they have, they don't think yeah. very clearly yeah. or carefully. But I what's guess. particularly interesting is the idea the the very, very popular book. I don't want to get too um to direct it here, but the very, very popular book, the most popular nonfiction book in psychology on the bestseller list, one of the most popular nonfictions in the in any category is called The Body Keeps the Score. I've heard of it, and this yeah. was something that was a gospel to, to many. <laughs> many people, and the students at some point will ask me, what do I think of The Body Keeps the Score? Mm -hmm. And I will tell them, the, the book is nicely written, it's a fantastic title, Sure. But it's but its basic thesis is wrong. Yep. And they're really surprised when I tell them that because mm -hmm. many people love this book, obviously, mm -hmm. because it sells so much. And many of the students in the classes I teach at a master's level think this book is just great. And I begin to unpack it for them, the thesis of the book. And I don't need to get into there's a lot of details to it. But the, the basic thesis is we the, the, the subcortical structures, you know, the things that we don't we're not aware of in our brain that's going on behind the scenes, that those were, that's where traumas are stored. And that's really just not possible. It's got to be, you know, a cortical process. And, um, and that th those processes also run the body, which they do, they run the body, but they don't have these sort of narrative, frightening memories. They, they just can't do that. So it's, it's a very misleading idea that sounds like neuroscience. Actually, they're giving the brain the ability to put stuff in different places, yeah. you know, so to speak. Like the brain's going to put this over here, you know, or this this experience is going to go there and stay there. What's unbelievable to me is how how rapidly this has changed. I I finished my clinical psych degree about eight years ago, and none of this would have ever been a topic of conversation. Um, yeah, CP, there is there's. <laughs> 
That's yeah, it was only eight years ago, and your your wow. typical our understanding of trauma was very much like the ICD uh, criteria and the definition yeah. for trauma. That's and PTSD. Wow. Yeah, it wasn't that long ago, so that's what kind of scares me <laughs> a yeah. little bit. I blame the internet for most of this because the internet is responsible for a lot of variation in behavior. So if you just if you just look at guitar playing and how it's come along on the internet and how people learn from each other on the internet. It, it, it's very good at sending things in any of a million directions and trauma was one of them. Yeah. You know, it's just, it, it, it can just take a concept and run with it and pretty soon it's applied well, to everything. Well, I, I don't, I don't use, I don't, I don't use TikTok and I, I, I did go dabble in it once and I thought, no, this is not for me. Good for you. But <laughs> I, I understand that it's, um, it, that there's, there's, this has gone just a muck on TikTok. Where people are diagnosing other people and explaining their symptoms to them, people who have just absolutely no idea. Yeah. What the, what the, what the it, 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 it's almost a new, I don't know, subculture. It's not, it's not simply overdiagnosis. Well, I've had, I've had people tell me online or, you know, on Twitter, I do, do, do go on Twitter. I've had people write responses to my book online and, you know, the reviews that you can find in where, where something is sold a product, there's always 5% or so sure. negative, no matter what it is. But I've right. had people say, this guy, this this guy has no idea what he's talking about. His research <laughs> is not, is, is terrible, even though there's 30 years of it, right? And, and that kind of response is, though, there's a kind of a sense of, I don't care how much research there is and how long right. this experience is, is, is wrong. And I know better. Uh, because that's what I think, right? And that's a very interesting phenomenon. That's happened too, I think, in yeah. just in a very short time. One of my uh, one of the, my favorite pieces of feedback, which I guess would have been a review for your book, George, was it was considered a course correction for everything that oh, we yeah, have been yeah. taught. That was yeah. one of it was so it was so succinctly put. But it, I thought the same thing regarding your book. If as we wrap up, how might we? Uh, kind of shift, move the needle a little bit more towards common sense and logic as it relates to discussing trauma? Um, well, that's, a. I mean, we being the world or we being? Oh, that's a great question, George. I would like to say the world. I don't know how realistic that yeah. is. <laughs> um, I guess, let's just right now stick with perhaps people within a psychology and related field. Oh, well, um, I, I think, um, We've we've gone a little well. We've gone. I think the mental health profession could 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 be the we. Sure. Because the research world is is more on on task with these sure. things and more aware aware of the evidence. I think the mental health world would do would do itself a favor by looking at the evidence um, and just you know we don't one doesn't have to be you know. Um, uh, one doesn't have to read scientific papers in detail. You know, let's face it, scientific papers are pretty boring unless you're, you're right in the in the area. Sure. But I think there's lots and lots of sort of um, digestions of scientific evidence. And you can do it, you know. I mean, it's a little hard for me to answer because I, I'm science literate. So when I have a medical problem, I can read the scientific papers. And that's a big advantage. But I think, you know, there are websites you can trust that digest the science for people you know and there are there's lots of that and mental health professionals can go there it's not entirely mental health professionals fault though 
in their defense because it's become it's become a top down institutional thing. You know, so this idea of trauma informed care, which is often coming from the top down, it's we have to do what everybody else is doing, or we'll be in trouble. That's, yeah, and that's a, that's another problem that's happened. Yeah. But, um, Whole other but thing. I think that you know that it it would be it really would behove the field to just catch up a little bit, and it's the same true same is true in a sense from medicine. I was listening the other day to a very important article about um, 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 menopause. And estrogen, and very few doctors will will prescribe estrogen for menopause, even though it works pretty well. It helps people with some of the negative symptoms of menopause. Women and women are half the world, and half the world is going to go through that age if they live long enough and have menopause. But one of the best um, one of the best treatments, at least to help alleviate symptoms, is estrogen. I don't know an enormous amount about this, but estrogen was prescribed until about, I don't remember when this happened, maybe the 60s or 70s, when there was a little bit of a sense of a cancer scare associated with estrogen. But the research has since shown that's not the case, actually. It's no more dangerous than many other pills and treatments people have, which all have some risk and some side effect. But the medical world does not know it. And medical, the medical world is basing treatment based on what they learned in medical school. So it's, it's kind of a pervasive problem. Um, but I think in the mental health world, it's time, it, it would be a good idea to um, go back to the books a little bit or go back, you know, and, and I know people do um, continuing education credits and, go, you know, they go to workshops, but maybe those workshops are also um, based on kind of incorrect ideas as well, you know. Um, lack of, I say lack of, um, of um, science informed, I'm not sure what word to use, um, you know, uh, current is, it would be even a better way to say it. Well, George, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and all of your insight on issues we have been dying to ask you. So... <laughs> Where um, where can we find you? Where can we keep up with you? Um, your book is on Amazon. Is there anywhere else that we could purchase The End of Trauma? Um, sure. The End of Trauma is available pretty much everywhere where, you know, where books are sold, as they say. Um, <laughs> sure. And, you, know, you know, I mean, it's, it's available online for sure everywhere. Awesome. Um, and it's, you know, so pretty much readily available. And I'm, I'm, I, I have a, a, I'm a very, my, my, I'm publicly accessible. So if anybody Googles my name, They'll find within with no trouble. They'll find my websites, and so I have a, a website at Columbia. I have a personal website, but there, you know, there, there, there are articles there, and there's, you know, I, that's where a lot of the ideas live. Beautiful, beautiful. I'm contactable also. That's good to know, everybody. He is very contactable and very fast with the email, so you expect an onslaught of them. Oh, thank you, George. There. Thank you, George. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. It's a very, been very nice discussion, and I, I enjoyed it. It's interesting. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>